Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. On this week's episode, we're focusing on the fascinating new British Museum exhibition on Peru, subtitled A Journey in Time. It's also the focus of the cover feature of the latest issue of Current World Archaeology, which is out now in the UK, and it's also available in full on the PAST website. There's a link to that in this episode's description. Marking the bicentennial of Peru's independence, the exhibition focuses on the history, beliefs and the culture of six different societies who lived in the region from around 2500 BC until the arrival of the Europeans in the 1500s. Last week, Current World Archaeology editor Matt Simons went along to a preview of the exhibition. While he was there, he caught up with its two curators, Cecilia Pardo and Jago Cooper. They can be heard here, with Jago kicking us off by telling Matt about the two key themes of the exhibition. So yeah, there are two key themes that we're trying to work around in order to sort of create a journey for the visitor through the exhibition. The first one is time. Uh, Peru, a journey in time isn't just like a flippant title, it's actually a meaningful one because you try to immerse the person who walks around in the concept of time. So Andean communities didn't have the same conceptualization of time as can be thought of in the Western world, where people here might think of the past being behind you, you live in the present and the future stretches out on sort of one line, whereas in Andean societies the past, the present and the future are all happening at the same moment. The past is still alive, it's dynamic and can be affected by what's going on in the present. And this is important because it means that the past can change. And, and this is true, right? If you come to the British Museum, we sometimes pretend that there's only one past and that we present it to the public. But in reality, that's made up. It's a theatre. There are so many different pasts that can be created, so many different narratives, so many people, different people to tell that narrative. And I think that's a very important message of the exhibition. And then the second theme is really environments. Yeah, environments and landscapes. So Andean societies and who inhabited the Peruvian territory that sits in the heart of the central Andes managed to uh, succeed and thrive in one of the most remarkable, though challenging, environments in the planet. Because in Peru we have one of the driest deserts in, in the planet, but one of the richest oceans, providing a lot of marine resources. Um, and also in the exhibition what we do is we link the object to those landscapes in order to place, to give them context um, and also these objects served as canvases to portray uh, communications and belief systems where the landscapes form part of those beliefs so you see animals, plants, mountains, lakes as part of these whole core systems of beliefs because these societies were agrarian societies that depended very much of what was happening in terms of weather and fertility. And so the thing that brings it together is the objects themselves because the objects are made from this living landscape and the objects themselves are alive because they're created from the sort of the, the, the materials of the landscape, the clay, the stone, the, the metals. And then those objects become sort of time portals because they were existed in the past, they're here now in the present and they'll be there in the future. So they act as these sort of interconnections between different time periods and then the stories they tell provide that journey between the different realms. And that's the excitement of the exhibition is that the stories are being told through these living objects. I couldn't help noticing as I was walking around you tend to see a lot of, of felines, of birds and of snakes. Is there a particular significance of these animals? Yes, so I, one of the, the like the first module where we start the journey in time is Chavin de Huanta, which was a very important pilgrimage centre that started developing toward 1500 BC and in Chavin de Huantar we see the, the start of the complex society in the way that we have 
very important architecture, monumental architecture, and a very complex system of beliefs, religion, we can call it, uh, based upon the merging and the blend of these three animals that embody the different realms of the sky, the human realm, and the underworld, represented, symbolized by the, the, the birds, the felines, and the snake. So those features, or those elements like fangs of append appended appendages, you will see them in objects all across the different cultures through time towards the end. Yeah, it's often referred to as sort of the Andean pantheon, the sort of symbolic link between different parts and landscapes of the Andes. And it's interesting how the ideas it shows basically how different you know, value systems and beliefs which you're in Chavin Duanta are replicated in their own individual ways in the different cultures you go through, because that's part of the symbology which is reflected in that continuity, which is really interesting. There are some absolutely spectacular textiles and pottery vessels in the exhibition, but one thing that really struck me were the wooden sculptures in the case just behind us, from the Maccabe Islands. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about what's going on there? So this is a group of objects that we found at the stores in the BM, the stores at the BM. Um, come, they come from the Wano Islands, just in front of the Moch, where the Moche lived. Um, and they were unearthed within the Wano layers by British mining companies where, when they were trying to find Wano towards the mid-19th century, where, when Wano was a very well-known, famous fertilizer, there was a monopoly between the, in the UK uh, being able, having the, the, the permission from Peruvian government in order to, to excavate the, those Wano. Um, and the objects arrived in the British Museum towards 1871 and they are remarkable because they portray the iconography they portray is really striking you you see officers in buildings mythical beings playing musical instruments especially prisoners naked prisoners with rope attached to their necks and they are placed in the context of a broader narrative that the moche um, prioritize in their system of belief which was ritual battles that resulted in the capture of prisoners and the consequent sacrifice. So what we see in many objects is deities taking prisoners from the mainland to the islands where we think something happened, probably sacrifice. No one never has excavated in those islands. So it's really a mystery, but also a potential in terms of what we can do in the BM collections, in the, with the BM collections in the future. Yeah. <clears throat> we have a tendency to see human sacrifice as this most awful, barbaric act, but can you tell us something about how life was perceived during that period as well? Yeah, obviously, if you just translate the word sacrifice for killing... Right, like every culture in the world has justifiable reasons they allow each other to kill each other, or in their own mind, the value systems they do it. So in this case, it's almost like warfare. If at the same time period that the Macho are in existence in Europe, our idea of sort of chivalry and good behaviour is to get become a knight and you ride into battle and hack to death as many people as you can on the battlefield, and then they die of blood loss and sepsis in these horrific ways. For the Moche, that would have been abhorrent. It would have been like a totally disgusting waste of life. So. For them, battles was carried out by capturing individuals or prisoners. It wasn't about killing, it was about capture. And then once you brought you, you, you captured the people, you brought them back, then the act of killing them publicly in an act of what we would call sacrifice or just killing them public 
physically and then creating these objects actually shows the value they placed on life. Yes, you need to have a symbolic structure by which power is transferred between winning and losing sides, but that act was in the death of public 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 killing. And then these objects represent a, a social memory of that event and they help justify the power of the leaders that won the battle. And so it's just like the word sacrifice is very evocative and emotional, but in reality it's a form of killing and then everyone does killing. So you just need to change your mindset and then really try and that's what the whole exhibition is about, trying to change people's perceptions of things that happen in every society. That was Jago and Cecilia talking to Matt Simons there. A couple of days later, I caught up with Matt himself so he could give me his review of the exhibition and so I could find out what else is in the latest issue of Current World Archaeology. Matt, thanks very much for joining me. Do you want to tell me a bit about your own thoughts on the exhibition? I thought it was fascinating, in a word. Really, really very interesting and absolutely full of glorious artefacts as well. So a great example of one of those exhibitions that really has it all. We heard from the curators about the themes that they wanted to pull out, and I thought it did that very, very successfully as well. I mean, particularly the landscape, which can be difficult in an enclosed exhibition space, but there were some lovely images of landscapes that were included around the walls, which really, I thought, helped to convey a sense of the spectacular terrain and landscape that these artefacts had originally come from. But something else that really struck me was the way that archaeologists working in places like Europe, for example, often spend their time looking for where different influences have come from and the many different origins of ideas and images that you can find on archaeological material. Whereas these societies in the central Peruvian Andes seem to have been reasonably cut off from the wider world in terms of influences. So you get these societies that have these very distinctive building blocks. And it is absolutely fascinating to see how these adapt and grow over time. And it really encourages you to think in a different way about the kind of building blocks that successful complex societies need. One thing which we tend to associate with empires, for example, is a writing system. But other than the quipus, the Inca empire didn't have any real form of writing system. But in a way, this almost plays as a strength for the exhibition, I think, because while we might not have the writings of these societies, why not? we might not have the stories or the mythologies or the histories that they were telling each other, we have the illustrations instead. And what illustrations they are, you have the pottery objects, which served as a canvas on which ideas and stories could be told. And I think quite often in archaeology, pottery is not perhaps seen as the most exciting unfairly maybe, of objects, but here, truly stunning, beautiful pottery objects with glorious scenes and iconography on them. And it really is worth just staring at them, studying them, and thinking about the kind of stories, the kind of ideas that they're presenting. And so that, for me, was a real highlight and well worth it. And obviously, this exhibition is the focus of the cover of the latest issue of Current World Archaeology, and there's an in-depth feature inside. Can you tell me what else is in this latest issue? Absolutely. As you say, we've got Peru as the, the cover feature. And from that, we move from, as I mentioned, these societies that were relatively cut off from influences from the wider world. We move to another story where it is influences from the wider world that tell us a great deal of interest. This is an opportunity to look at some excavations that have been taking part in Adulis, 
which was the port city of the kingdom of Axum in the Horn of Africa. And there, there's a church and a possible cathedral that have been under excavation. And you are seeing these materials and these architectural ideas that are flowing in from many different directions, from the Mediterranean, from across the Red Sea, and local architecture as well, all coming together to create something new and exciting. And I think really giving a sense of the different ideas that were coming together in this incredible cosmopolitan trading hub. From that, we move to another subject which perhaps has been a little under-examined, and that is the jungle. Now, I think most of us are familiar with this idea that our distant ancestors left the jungle somewhere between about four and two million years ago and moved into the African savanna. And it was there that they learned to walk upright, to develop sophisticated tools, and from then to go on and spread across the world. So there's a sort of tendency to look at humanity as having turned its back on the jungle and spread out from that point onwards. But new research is looking at how the jungle environment, this resource-rich environment could really help with the spread of humanity around the world and indeed allow great civilizations to flourish if it's managed and used in the right way. For me, this really was a preconception-shattering piece to work on because it really has made me look at tropical forest, jungle in a completely different way and huge amounts of very, very interesting research going on there. Perhaps one of the most interesting things going on in the jungle has been the recent use of LIDAR survey, this ability to use lasers from aircraft to look through the, the forest canopy and see subtle earthworks existing underneath it and showing just how large some things like mayor cities could be. So we have this cutting edge technology giving us a real glimpse of what was possible in a forest environment. And from that cutting edge technology, it's nice to switch back to some much older recording methods which were being used at Boutrint in the 1930s. Now this is a classical city in Albania and one of the many things that it's well known for is an incredible series of inscriptions that give us real detail about how slaves were being freed in the city. It's an incredible series of documents. They were found in the 1920s and they've been left exposed to the elements ever since. So these inscriptions have weathered somewhat in the passing decades. But a discovery that was made during the COVID pandemic of last year, because groups were working remotely, they weren't in the field as much, they were taking a little bit more time to look at some of the materials in their archives, and they found a series of squeezes. This is essentially paper casts that were made of these inscriptions shortly after they were discovered. And these give an opportunity to show whether or not the original readings of the inscriptions, the ones that were taken before they became weathered, were accurate and therefore allow us to get a better sense of just how well we really know this incredible series of documents. Okay, thanks very much, Matt. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Matt Simons talking to me there. All the articles he discussed, including the special cover feature on Peru, are in the latest Current World Archaeology, out now in the UK as well as online at the PASS website. That's all for this week. Thanks to Matt for standing in as an interviewer, and to our two guests, Cecilia and Diego, and also to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.